You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kassang and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you are newer to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed. Like my conversation with Andrew Beer last week, where we discussed CTA replication, the good, the bad, and the ugly and what he sees coming for the CTA industry as a whole. Also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Kevin spoke to Richard Duncan, economist and best-selling author, about new ways of thinking about the economic growth and prosperity and how the world has become addicted to credit. Anyway, head over and check them out once you're done listening to Jim and I today. Jim, it is great to have you on the Systematic Investor Series for a change. How are you doing? How are things in the Windy City? Doing well. Uh, fall here, it's beautiful. All the leaves are changing color. So, uh, excited to be on here with you. Uh, I, I actually get to do some of the talking this time. So Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Now, we have a wonderful lineup of topics that you brought along, so we'll be tackling them today a little bit later. Before we do that, let me briefly run through uh, a little bit of a summary for the week uh, it was a little bit difficult in terms of what to focus on this week's uh, market summary because, yet again, so many things are happening and they're happening at pretty fast pace on the political front. Of course, the chaos in the UK and the resignation of the prime minister after only a few weeks in the job has created a lot of headlines. But I'm not sure that her leaving Downing Street has moved the market that much to today and yesterday. And both the pound and the gills are off their lows, although... Um, as we record, they're a little bit soft heading into the weekend. In the US, Fed Hawk Governor Lisa Cook uh, warned about tackling inflation, and it'll probably mean rates going higher for longer, repeating the message from last week. And the Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker said officials uh, will probably take the benchmark rate well above 4% this year and will most likely hold them there. And currently the market is pricing in a peak of 5% in the first half of 2023. Of course, what this has meant in the markets this week is the continuation of the sell-off in fixed income markets. US bond down more than 3% uh, this week. And I can't help worrying a little bit uh, that we'll see some stress in the system show up if it continues. And it may well be that it's the pension fund system like we've seen in the UK. Those of you who have listened to the podcast for some time know that I've been very skeptical about the 60-40 portfolio's ability to work as well as people have come to expect. But the weaknesses of the so-called balanced portfolio has been really exposed in such a public manner uh, this year. And it also raises questions about, you know, many investors love for the sharp ratio uh, as their go-to metric. And on the topic of the sharp ratio, one of our previous guests, David Dredge from Convex Strategies, he just published his monthly newsletter, which I definitely encourage people to subscribe to. And in it, he writes, and I quote, in sharp world, historical volatilities and correlations always remain constant. Geometric compounding paths are irrelevant. Tails are never fat. Leverage is not a risk. Frequency matters more than magnitude. Ensembles averages dominate time averages. And David and Dave continues 
it doesn't take a great mental leap to determine that a major, perhaps uh, the major, uncapitalized tale that has built up over the last 35 years, call it the era of the Greenspan put, is the sharp world-driven universe, universal belief uh, and application that the fixed income component of the 60-40 portfolio and all of its variation is risk-reducing. In sharp world, the fixed income characteristics of low volatility, bounded upside, low to negative correlation is deemed to have a portfolio benefit and reduces, in effect, the amount of capital you would otherwise deem necessary to hold against potential losses on the portfolio. And he continues again, that of course only holds as long as sharp world assumptions of low volatility and low to negative correlation to the other portfolio components persist. Those beneficial components have persisted for a reasonable significant number of years, but notably aided and accentuated through active manipulation by central bank policies makers through ever greater intervention to drive yields lower and to suppress curtail volatility, particularly around events that necessitated the negatively correlating response. This is not currently the case. So, yeah, definitely something uh, worth exploring further in the future as well. Um, but at this stage, as usual, let me bring in you, Jim, and just sort of ask a little bit on what's your on on your radar. Maybe not just on this week, but maybe you know at the moment in general. Yeah, today is uh, options expiration, uh, so that's kind of top of mind for me. Um, we see all of these uh, kind of Vana charm flows, these things that I talk about. I'm not going to dive into too much detail now, but the delta buyback of options decay that happens into these expirations. And when, once that gets removed, there's generally a, a period of weakness. We were seeing that this morning, uh, as kind of you might expect. And then uh, the Fed released, uh, a, you know, through the Fed whisperer, Nick Timuros, uh, a article this morning, uh, basically uh, laying out uh, the the, the the fact that they're thinking about thinking about uh, pausing and taking a look and seeing what the lagging effects of their policy have been. Uh, and that really lit a fire under markets this morning. So kind of interesting. Um, that having been said, like you have noted, uh, you know, the 10 the year yield has not come off really on that. Um, I think that's somewhat telling. Um, it's it's really, uh, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting kind of dynamic we're seeing in markets at, at this point. Uh, outside of that, um, we are seeing an event vol priced in, a significant vol fight priced into the Fed meeting on November 2nd, and the midterms are November 8th. So the, there's a significant bid to, to vol in that area. Um, what that ends up doing is, is generally that makes it um, hard for markets to rally in the short term, but eventually that serves as potential energy and fuel for this Delta buyback. Uh, we saw this during Brexit. We saw this during uh, Trump election in 2016, uh, the contested election here in the U.S. in 2020, all of them worst case scenarios, yet we got big rallies on the back of all three of those. Um, and that really is a function of market structural dynamics, uh, which are tied to these event falls. Um, and the decay of the hedges that exist for those events. Uh, and diving right in, there's a lot, a lot of meaty stuff in there, yeah, but, no, it's, I can, but that's I can what, see it, yeah. but that's what we're looking at right now. And, yeah. and so there's this potential energy sitting out there, um, in, and starting in about a week and a half for, for, uh, end of year rally. That's the, the, the like igniting 
uh, fuel, right? That's the ignition switch, I guess. Uh, and then the fuel is more uh, poor, poor positioning, bear sediment, right? End of year, uh, poor liquidity that could really uh, push this thing higher um, in the short term. Um, uh, but there are big, big macro risks sitting on the other end of that. And I think we're going to get to that probably in the back end of the show sure. um, uh, related to kind of vol liquidation, uh, liquidity problems in the in the markets, et cetera. But I think we'll, we'll leave that for the end. But that's what's top of mind for me. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, both a little macro, but also market market structure. No, absolutely. It's very interesting. And it certainly will be, uh, you know, a fourth quarter to remember, I think, uh, in both the vol space and 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 the trend following space um so uh, yeah and so i have a feeling we're going to be uh, uh, talking about this for for quite a while um, um anyways from a trend following perspective this week uh and i maybe i should say you know october uh, so far we're kind of uh, three quarters of the way into it um you know performance in october is somewhat broad based if i look at the attributions uh, of our own strategy um, but of course, the main drivers continue to be fixed income currencies. Um, and with the exception of metals and meats uh, and maybe equities where it looks like, you know, it's kind of flat-ish, uh, all sectors are profitable um, so far in October. Uh, there has been some pretty big individual market moves like natural gas, which is down about 20% this week. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, at least when I last looked at the screen, I don't know if it's changed now, but um, uh, the 30-year bond uh, is trading down sort of meaningfully this week as well. Uh, to the upside, not a lot of action. Soybean oil uh, has put in a, a brave performance of up 6 to 7% for the week, uh, at least at the time of recording. My own trend barometer closes, uh, closed yesterday. We're recording one day early, I should say, so today's Friday. Uh, so close Thursday at 43. So that's kind of neutral to weak uh, level. And performance of the indices that we normally um, cover, it's the beta 50 index, which is up 1.5% for the month, up 21.26 for the year. SockGen CT index up 1.6 for the month, up 28.12 for the year. The SockGen trend index up one and a quarter, up 37 and a quarter now for the year. And the SockGen uh, short-term traders index is flat for the month, up 13 for the year. And in contrast to that, we have, at least as of yesterday, the MSCI World Index up 2% for the month, but down about 25% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index were down about 1.7% as of uh, yesterday for the month alone, and obviously down quite significantly for the year. All right, with that out of the way, um, Jim, we're going to dive into some of the topics. And there's quite a few to choose from, and I had to kind of organize them a little bit. And it's always hard to um, to d decide, you know, which one to come first. But I've chosen this one, uh, which comes from an article um, that I uh, received uh, only a couple of days ago from EQD. It's an EQD uh, article. Um, and it is a news story that I think is pretty big in the world of volatility as it relates to perhaps one of the best known and a really great promoter of the whole volatility space named Chris Cole uh, from Artemis, uh, where it came out that he has decided to close a couple of his funds, uh, scale back his operation. Uh, a lot of people will know Chris uh, and perhaps the great papers that he have uh, produced over the years, um, such as how to best construct a portfolio that's going to last you for 100 years. Um, but of course, um, I know, Jim, that you also know him personally, as far as I understand. Um, so let me just start by start by asking you if this piece of news came as a surprise to you, so to speak. No, it's not a surprise per se. Um, 
you know, again, as, as a friend, uh, you know, I, I know how hard this business can be. So I, I want to lead off by saying, you know, it's, uh, uh, obviously didn't work, uh, and he's doing kind of the right thing by, uh, kind of reexamining and, and sending back capital, but not a surprise to me that there's been all the challenges aren't all focused on him, right? It has been a very difficult environment to be long volatility. Um, you know, we've done well, but that's been despite, you know, the, the environment, um, the reality is, uh, the world has been, I've talked about this quite a bit. The world has been incredibly well hedged or, or was near the top uh, in the equity vol space. Um, we had record skew levels and, and record hedging going on at the top. Everybody, this happens during periods when, uh, you know, after you've had a big vol event, you had Feb to March 2020 during COVID. That's very fresh in people's mind. Pe- people, you know, entities made a lot of money being long vol along the tail. Entities that were short it got blown out. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll probably never get money again. Um, and so, uh, you know, what this leads to is, uh, again, this over hedging, a lot of money flowing into hedging platforms and, and, and vol strategies. And uh, reflexively, when that's the case, it pins volatility into to a decline because there's supply of vol into the decline. Um, uh, and the ultimate pain trade ends up being if the world is long stock uh, and hedge with uh, puts, the, the pain trade ends up being down with vol down. And that's essentially what happened. The, the world was didn't want to get rid of their high-flying kind of winners. Uh, they wanted to hold on to the beta and, and try and spend a little bit of money to hedge uh, on the downside. And uh, it just so works out those hedges don't really work um, in uh, in all market moves and in a, in a stair step down uh, 25% decline over the course of nine months is, is actually the exact the worst case scenario for, can, for that can type I of quote you? Can I quote a few things from the article um, that Chris said? And then maybe you have some color you can put on on what this all uh, means in, in, in your mind. But what I picked up from the article was things where Chris was saying, we're seeing the VIX breakdown comparatively, he said. Uh, there are different theories as to why that is. Uh, but Cole said that he thinks that people are missing a key factor. The big elephant in the room is the fact that in a stagflationary environment, underperforming equity stock market vol is not an anomaly. Instead, it is the new normal. Cole said that in the current environment, he hears echoes of the 1970s where a stagflationary recession was a shadow depression clocked by money printing as inflation cut volatility and stock drawdowns in half, transmuting the variance through commodities, currencies, and rates. He said that volatility is now being transferred into other asset classes. Yeah, so... um Actually, it's funny. We have a, a, a next quarterly newsletter, which is coming out in the next month here, um, is going to deal with exactly that topic, which is um, how does uh, what happens to implied volatility and realized volatility in inflationary markets uh, when you're dealing with nominal uh, nominal uh, products, right? Um, and that's essentially what he's referring to. There is no implied volatility data because options didn't exist the last time we had structural inflation. So it's an interesting topic. Um I agree with Cole, uh, Chris, on this. I've I've talked to him about this on a panel before. Um, uh, I think structurally, I mean, you look at sixty-eight to eighty-two. Nominally, equity markets went nowhere for fourteen years. So, what does that tell you about volatility, long-term volatility, right? Uh, you know, whereas markets, in Norton, you know, are, are on average going up fifteen percent a year in the last twenty years. 
um, with uh, significant kind of volatility on the way that makes for higher realized and higher, um, uh, you know, implied. So, um, so he, he's on to something there. That's uh, that is not the story that of what has happened, uh, in my opinion. Uh, that is not the the driving the inflation supporting equities is not the story uh, of the short term, in my opinion. Uh, really, the you know, and again, if you look at the '60s and '70s, there was a lot of realized volatility on short term ball. And so those are different things, right? If you look at a 10-year period and say, oh, the market didn't go no anywhere, right? Uh, sell ball, uh, you, you could have gotten in a major problem. You know, we went through, uh, you know, the Vietnam War, the, uh, you know, uh, OPEC crisis, uh, savings alone. Uh, you know, you can go, uh, there was, inc- it was an incredibly volatile geopolitical time um, on a lot of different fronts. Uh, the market had uh, multiple drawdowns of more than 25%, had a 50%, 47% drawdown in early in the cycle, had several 25 to 35% drawdown. So it was a very uh, volatile time. It had uh, 75 to 80% rallies, um, and they all happened relatively uh, quickly when they happened. So um, th- it's important to note that, that that is not necessarily true for realized vol on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, but it does change the di- broad dynamic. And I do think that that long, long-term long vol is, is broadly more of a sale than people have expected. If you look at the last 40 years of data, you're going to be playing the wrong game. But uh, again, short-term risk to this market in a world where we have more geopolitical strife. I've talked about this with you on other uh, platforms, but you know we're in a competition game. We're no longer in a collaboration game. And that means more war. That means more uh, resource scarcity. So entities battling over that in other ways, like, uh, again, uh, you know, the OPEC, uh, you know, plus cuts is a great example, right? Uh, bombing, uh, you know, or, or, or the Nord Stream pipeline, things like that are, are things that happen during a time of resource scarcity and a time of, of competition. So um, that's not something that's going away next year. That's something that's here to stay for probably a decade plus, in my opinion. And that's what we've seen historically. So, um, so complicated topic in the sense that there is more risk. There is more um, you know, uh, we're, we're sitting in front of, uh, you know, the, the risk of tactical nukes and, uh, you know, China invading Taiwan. Uh, you can go on and on about the, the geopolitical risks. And these are not uh, tail, like these are not, they, people may have thought they were small black swans. They're, they're gray, you know, they're rhinos right now, right? They're gray rhinos. These, these are things that are, that are known that are likely to at some point happen, honestly. Um, uh, so, so real uh, potential tail risks. Um, it exists more than uh, maybe during past periods, but but long-term vol is, is likely, which is what he's referring to, is likely to come down. So again, not the reason. The, the reason things have come down is, is uh, you know, it hasn't performed in the last two years is is more practical. It's more a function of supply and demand. And I, I think that's that's the truth. But, but let me pick up on one of the things you said. And this is, you know, where you said, well, you know, we've never had sort of options or, or volatility strategies through an inflationary environment because the VIX didn't wasn't invented until 2004 um so we've never really been through this so uh, obviously what i remember from a trend followers perspective is of course how popular the volatility strategies became after volmageddon and after covid even though i mean trend following didn't do well through volmageddon but it did pretty well through um uh, at least it held its 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 um, value i should say um through covid but there was a lot of interest, uh, and there was a lot of uh, it was a big push to uh, to get people to 
to go that in that direction for their portfolio protection. So my my question to you in a in a in a long winded way is to say, well, if volatility has never or these strategies has never really existed in an inflationary environment, we now have that. How on earth are investors to have any ways of knowing how those strategies will behave now that we are here? What's worked in the last uh 30, 40 years, which seems like forever, right? It's all that anybody thinks about is following a trend in a way, right? It's really um, looking at what works uh, and has worked and modeling it based on price performance. Um, the reality is when mark the market starts to turn and the world changes, right? It takes um, kind of bigger thinking, right? It takes uh, uh, creativity. It takes uh, uh, kind of understanding what the bigger picture is doing and, and looking at honestly still trends you got to look at data but the bigger trends right longer historic trends and and uh and that's what happens on the turn right anytime something's really turning and things are changing uh, you know it's one thing to model things in different regimes but how do you choose how do you understand when a regime is changing right how do you understand and and we're talking about a 40-year regime right um and so um so it's it takes uh thought leadership it takes uh being right <laughs> uh and, and really understanding what the effects the knock-on effects may be but my my point jim was a little bit maybe a little bit different um because i'm thinking at least i'm just talking from from my own personal experience and that is every time we talk to investors about including say trend following in their portfolio they're going to want to look at you know our 40-year track record to get a sense of how we behave how the models behave etc cetera, etc cetera. But over 40 years, we're lucky enough to say, well, at least we've had a few different environments in terms of inflation and, and, and so on and so forth. But when you have a volatility strategy um, where most people don't have a long track record, I'm, I'm actually just curious how you, if you were the investor, let's put it that way, maybe that's a better question. If you were the investor, how would you look at a manager's um, track record given the fact that most of them, if not all of them, have never gone sort of beyond 2004? Yeah, so first and foremost, uh, you know, to Chris's point, you need to look at things and adjust for realize, you know, uh, you need to look at realized vol, you need to look at historical performance, and then adjust for the effects of inflation. And that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, look, it's a quiet uh, yes, uh, 68 to 82, the market went nowhere in nominal terms. So that seems incredibly non-volatile, but it lost 70% of its value over that time in real terms. So you can kind of uh, adjust, right, uh, nominal volatility versus what real might be um, in those scenarios. Um, you really have to build a different model, right? You can't just look at uh, nominal assets and, and, and model them. Uh, directly maybe um that's one and two um you do have and while, while writing this paper we're struggling with the same issue right uh, how do you kind of uh model what you think should be and, and convince people that's what's likely um and and the, the answer is where you know you have to go dive into the realized volatility that you're seeing and then make some assumptions about what implied volatility would do um in those in those environments um etc so um there's Again, there's a reason there's an opportunity, uh, you know, in this. It, it, if it was easy, everybody and everybody knew uh, what, what was going to happen. There wouldn't be an opportunity there. But, um, but this is a unique time uh, with 
with uh, we have history to to kind of look and, and and have a sense of what's possible and likely. Um, but uh, yeah, there's no, unfortunately, there's no way to say for sure as as you know how things are going to turn out. Um, you 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 do the best you can with the data that you have, and um, and and you have to think big picture and think about the risks and the, the distributions of outcomes. Sure, no, that's fair. Let's move on. Um, you brought up a question which I thought was very interesting, and obviously you look at it maybe slightly different than I would, but certainly I think most people, um, or a lot of people who, who listen to uh, to the podcast will be aware uh, that liquidity actually became a little bit of an issue uh, very recently in the UK um, due to pension funds being really called for margin and forced to sell, um, you know, government bonds, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you said, you know, let's talk a little bit about liquidity conditions, how they're changing, why this matters. So I'm all ears, Jim, I want to hear yeah. your thoughts on this. There is no more important topic than this, in my opinion, right now. If you look at the kind of uh, you know, for me, the center of the world is U.S. equities, right? It's where all the liqu liquidity is um, broadly um, uh, for hedging in particular. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, that is um, a major, uh, you know, a major cause. And, and it's part of why Chris's Cole's, Chris Cole's strategy hasn't worked. Um, you know, it, it's been the primary driver of the pinning of this market, that there have been hedges, that there has been liquidity you know, this is where the this is where the world comes to get liquidity when they need it to hedge, to to um, to get out of certain positions and take off beta. Um, at the end of the day, remember the the whole world's equity uh, exposure is about a uh, hundred trillion dollars, uh, right? Uh, you know, if you talk about all commodities, about four hundred trillion. Uh, you know, uh, all long um, assets, four hundred trillion dollars. Um, so there's not enough liquidity in this world. So the, the places where there is uh, are incredibly important to to the stability of, of, the, of the machine. So those hedges uh, have broadly pinball and controlled the uh, what could have otherwise been incredibly, if you think about the macro risks and what's happened out there, could have been incredibly more volatile. Um, nevertheless, we have seen incredible volatilities and illiquidity uh, start to happen on the exterior uh, around this pin, right? Uh, we've seen it in gilts, we've seen it in JGBs, we've seen it in treasuries, we've seen it, uh, you know, uh, commodities, right? There's there's so many spaces that we've seen um, real volatility and, and real tail events, but it continues to be tethered, right, to this big 10,000 pound gorilla in the middle. What we've seen recently and why this is so important is we're starting to see that pin, that, that liquidity and the, the place where the liquidity matters most to thin uh, and do so significantly. Um, top of book liquidity in the ES minis, so so futures, um, has is at a record low. Um, uh, uh, if you look at options liquidity uh, in the SPX, um, again thinning out dramatically. Some of the lowest liquidity we've seen, um, uh, you know, in terms of depth of market. Um, may, may I ask you how you define liquidity? Just for, for because we may yeah, think I mean about each one's different, right? Yeah. Uh, the ES, I was saying top of book liquidity, so um, just kind of the. How much, on average, the the uh, the bid ask okay. um, uh, is um, you know at any given moment um, uh, in the SPX, it's actually depth. It's pure depth to get uh, a certain amount of size, uh, a notional value done uh, on the book. So it's the actual depth of the bid ask spread. 
Um, you know, uh, there's no perfect way to measure liquidity, but uh, I can tell you anecdotally, this is a very representative of, of, of what we're seeing too. If you want to get done things done, it's just not as easy as, as it may have been, uh, several months ago. Um, never mind a year ago. Um, and that obviously happens into to stressful declines, right? But when, in, when things are relatively calm, which they are, I mean, yes, things are crazy, but like, um, that doesn't tend to, to happen. It, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, dealers at banks, market makers have an incentive to stay in the market and, and take their, 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 um, their money. So why is that happening is a question, right? Not just because, uh, things are happening on the, uh, on the exterior, right? Um, but there's actually now more and more um, option volumes actually hit a record um, uh, recently in the SPX, uh, and it's and it's centered around um, uh, zero days to expiration options. So very um, you know things that are hard to hedge for dealers broadly. Um, it's forcing it's generally uh, buying of a speculative, much like kind of a speculation we saw in calls and tech names. It, it forces dealers into a very short gamma positions when it happens, and it's very hard to hedge. So, so um, you know broadly, and, and we're getting big trappy moves in all directions and risks all over. So, so dealers are broadly saying, "Hey, look, I need more uh, you know edge to be compensated for what what seems to be increasing risk." As that. If this is the place of liquidity, right, um, and it's thinning out, where, and there's so many risks on the exterior, that that really is um, that's really a, a bad sign. Um, I think you add to that the point you made about uh, long vol managers, um, uh, you know, capitulating. Uh, that's what's happening. Uh, they're being forced to capitulate. Uh, that there's a general timeline. I've talked about this before in other platforms, but of of uh, slow vol moves followed by people abandoning those hedges and then big vol moves and then everybody crowding back into vol hedges. And, and so where are we on that timeline? Uh, you know, we went from the hundredth percentile on skew and vol uh, at the top and everybody being hedged to now the zeroth percentile. We're literally in the zero percentile for skew in, uh, in the SMB, like downside versus upside hedges because it hasn't worked. And because people have, who were long those puts uh, absolutely got decimated. Uh, you know, uh, Chris Cole's not the only one. Um, and absolutely uh, had to kind of liquidate and, and people who have been selling puts and selling stock against it look like geniuses. And, and this is the new, you know, oh, you can hedge your portfolio by just selling puts apparently. So, um, uh, so that's, you know, so the, the pendulum has swung and, and, uh, things are getting, uh, less liquid at the same time that long ball managers are getting liquidated. Uh, people aren't hedging as much because they've gotten destroyed doing it. And, and they, they, again, uh, once you get that kind of capitulation in the place where, which is the source in, uh, of, of liquidity in the pin that has controlled this decline, things start to get a little bit scary, right? Especially when you have the macro risks and the, the potential tail that we've seen across uh, in other corners of the market. Um, uh, so is it is it fair to say so so I had kind of two questions that prompted um, when you when you when I hear you talk uh, I mean one is it fair to say that the actual liquidity issue has happened before but it's just never really happened at a time where the potential uh, catalysts for something big to happen is there are so many of them yeah is that I how think to think about it in a sense yeah, and I think particularly noting the yes, uh, that's true. I think particularly noting how important, uh, you know, we've never really seen this much hedging into an event uh, that has pinned, you know, it's basically been a massive tug of war between macro and real kind of geopolitical uh, risks 
you know, real money flow risks against reflexive effects of hedging in the market. That's been the tug of war. Now that those hedges, you know, the market's declined, people are kind of abandoning those hedges, saying, okay, uh, I'm not going, you know, the, the thinning of that matters because in the context of what else is happening, like you said, what else, what those risks are and what we've seen, um, you know, uh, as a, as a result. So, yeah, I think, I think without that pin, I think it's fair to say we would have had a much more volatile, um, move, uh, if people were less prepared for it, uh, given, uh, the things that have happened. Um, and, and I, and now that people are less prepared for the next leg, um, that, that, uh, you know, that there's more risk to that tail. I don't want to scare people listening to us today, but, and I don't know if you follow Elliott wave theory, but, um, I happen to come across it from time to time and I kind of, I, and I know that the, the people who say that they were, or I wouldn't say they say, but they were certainly the early ones. And I don't want to name any names, um, um in terms of, of the Elliott wave theory, um, and they were wrong. I mean, their timing had been horrible because they were expecting this massive turn um, years ago. Now, it may have happened last year in 2021, um, which is probably my own um, base case that, that that is it. But if they're right this time, it's interesting what you say, because in their way of counting what's going on in the markets, we're just about to hit into the first of the really major nasty down moves uh, in the, their way of looking at markets. So it's kind of like what you're saying. People tend to abandon stuff just before they need it. We see it in trend following so often that people redeem just before the trends come back. So it wouldn't be a surprise in my view. Yeah, I mean, reflexively, it drives that, right? That's why. It's not a coincidence that that happens. It's That's what it takes to get uh, the unpinning that we need. And, and so we're seeing the signs. This is supply and demand at the end of the day, right? It's, it's what the top of book liquidity, the, the hedging that's happening in the market. These are things that drive direct demand or supply into markets. And so it's important to understand what they, what they're saying. And that changes your distribution of outcomes. And that distribution is becoming increasingly fat tailed to the left tail. So when you see something like this, Jim, I'm just curious, uh, obviously we have to be careful about talking specific about uh, strategies, et cetera, et cetera. But when you see something like this happening, what happens in your thinking? What's happening in the way you approach the whole space? Yeah, so um, I'm fortunate to be in the vol space, so I don't have to bet on up or down. Um, I can bet on the distribution. Um, that sounds complicated. Not really. I mean, they're, they're, every option represents a spot on the distribution and, uh, and moneyness and time, right? And uh, there are different assets to, uh, you know, different options and, and different assets to bet in different ways along their distribution. So everybody thinks vol is an asset class. Vol is not an asset class. Vol is the underlying distribution of every asset class. And so um, if you take that perspective, there are ways to, with very low cost, bet on certain specific parts of that distribution being different than are being priced. Um, and that's essentially what we do. Uh, we go find places that we feel are very mispriced based on our uh, analysis. Um, you know, on the distribution and we make, um, you know, very uh, targeted bets on, on those parts of the distribution. Uh, the obvious, you know, thing here is a fat tail would mean that the market is not pricing correctly that tail. That doesn't mean you just go buy a gazillion puts necessarily because that can be expensive over time, but you can go find ways to go buy those puts and sell something else to, um, to offset that. 
um, and take advantage for, uh, of what you think the distribution is relative to what the market is pricing. Okay, cool. Now, I don't know if you want to talk more about the vol space. I have one follow-up question in, in, in before we, but I know we also had some sort of non-vol type topics we wanted to to uh, to talk about. Um, so, so feel free to go back and talk more about some of the topics that are more specifically to to the volatility space. But, but of course, um, you know, I can't have you on um, and and not ask you about um, when it comes to portfolio protection. Or crisis alpha, as a lot of people love to to put it, and that's fine. How do you? And I, I obviously don't know how well versed you are in 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 my world of trend following. Um, but how do you think of volatility strategies versus trend following when it comes to portfolio protection, and and maybe how should investors decide what to prioritize in terms of their allocation? Um, if that's what they're looking for, because I think, I think a lot of money flows into these strategies with that objective. I need something to protect my portfolio. So, so what 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 are your thoughts on 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 those two? Because I can't think of any other strategies per se that people would say, oh, though I have to look at this for portfolio protection. But I do think volatility and trend following is are, are two that they would always. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, so obviously, uh, trend following has worked very well. Um, it, it, you know, we've been in a very much a, a trending market. Part of that, I would argue, is because of the vol compression. So it's been a, there are macro structural flows that are pushing us in a direction, but it has been relatively, uh, you know, there's a, a clear dynamic happening here with a push and pull that leads to a somewhat orderly trend, uh, trend flow. Um, uh, I think when that, becomes more unpinned, it becomes more dangerous, right? It becomes more trappy, becomes more, um, you know, uh, and trend, trend may not work as well, um, in, in those environments, but it's very useful and has been incredibly useful, um, for these types of environments. So it should definitely be a part of, um, an allocation for, uh, you know, this approach. Um, I think it's important the way I think about the world again is through that volatility lens, um, most people think about beta, right? I think beta is an awful measure because uh, what is, you know, a a 1% down move over a month is very different than, um, you know, uh, a, a up uh, 5% then down 6% move over a, a month. Uh, they're very, you know, very different types of moves and understanding the different outcomes um, and speed of which they, they happen is important. Uh, vol is not a monolith. You know, people look at the VIX. Oh, you either buy vol or you sell vol. It doesn't really work that way. You buy, buy different parts of the distribution. I could be long a one delta put and mass, uh, you know, a, a week out, or, or, or I can be long uh, a 10 delta call and short stock against it uh, a year out. Those are completely different things, and, and they both will have convexity to the downside, different levels of it and different amounts of it. They'll have different convexity to the upside. They're both long volatility of hedge, right? Um, but um, but ultimately, uh, very, very different uh, distribution of that you're, you're betting on. Um, and so I think it's, uh, I, I think of, of, uh, you know, the beta that you get, uh, from, from something like trend following or, or a long tail strategy is all just different forms of betting on, on that, that side of the distribution. And, and, and the, the right approach is to find people with edge, whether it's a trend following, whether it's a different vol strategies, different, uh, uh, that, that ultimately represent part of that downside distribution and, and put together a, a portfolio that has multiple kind of, uh, you know, uh, orthogonal, 
uh, performance that has edge. Each one has its own little piece of edge and that diversifies your uh, outside, your outcomes to the downside because it's very hard, obviously, to even if you have a, a relative probabilistic edge in your strategy for, uh, for one part of the distribution, it uh, doesn't mean that's going to happen. Uh, there's lots of other idiosyncratic things that drive outcomes. And so best to to cover yourself. Uh, and as we've seen with Chris Cole, right? Like they're, um, they, they were long downside. They were long protection. Uh, that doesn't, they weren't misrepresenting what they did. It just didn't work because the way that downside unfolded, um, wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't supportive for that, that performance. Uh, that do- doesn't mean again, he performed incredibly well, Feb, March, 2020, right? Cause that was a convex move. That was a tail move. Um, but but talking about beta in that context is is almost irrelevant, right? It's it's because uh, because it, it really is a function of what kind of down move are you getting, what kind of uh, distribution uh, is is is, uh, is is happening. So point is, you have to diversify your hedges and not just diversify them with different kinds of puts or different types of different strategies that do well in different types of environment over time and distance. Um, you know, and multidimensionally, uh, how does, you know, how does the assets they're, they're managing within that time and distance perform, uh, throughout those periods? Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's well said. And, um, I, I don't know, I can't speak for, um, for anything about volatility, of course. Um, but just like we've seen this year where bonds as a protection part of your portfolio has clearly shown that you can't rely on that, um, anymore, Sometimes you can, but not as consistently as we've seen in the last 20 years. I wonder, and this will be my last question on Vol, I I promise. I wonder if you think that long vol as an isolated strategy, as as we talked about earlier, which was promoted a lot uh, after those uh, events in 18 and 2020, but something, and I don't want to make it sound like it's simple, but something that is uh, focusing more on the just long vol side of things do you think people will shy away from that in terms of looking for protection after what we've experienced now a little bit like what we've seen with bonds where people are most likely not going to say yeah i'm just going to buy bonds as my protection and then look for as you say other types of strategies that attacks the problem from a different side that's what's happening that's what uh, the closing of artemis is showing you uh, people aren't willing to take that pain anymore, uh, and they are liquidating. That is what capitulation is. People are capitulating, uh, and why are they capitulating? Because it's a function of time. They just will only take so much pain over so much time. It's a function of distance. So this was meant to be short beta. Uh, so you know, if, if the market's down twenty five percent, and this is down twenty five percent. You know what? People just they don't they don't fully get it, and they don't care. They're out and. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the answer is yes. People chase performance. Uh, that's part of why trend works, right? Uh, people chase what's working and that's, a, there's a momentum factor that, 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 uh, that, that get, that makes trend work. Um, but, uh, that the, the problem with that is after they capitulate, right? Uh, the trend changes and when the trend changes is when you want to have kind of the more that thing that, that that was not working uh, and really changed that's the change in trend and and so there's a connection here right between these assets and we're definitely um reaching my point is is a change in trend moment um uh, in my opinion and, and i think it's coming in the next three to six months
let's leave it there and let's move to another thing that is how should i say putting the world maybe at breaking point and that is um our friend the us dollar it is something that uh, is um debated heavily in terms of uh, how strong it is how strong it can get uh, and uh, we know of course that in the last couple of years there's been so many people predicting that it would just collapse disappear but it's still here this was one of the topics you wanted to talk about so um i will be quiet listen yeah, to I your mean, thoughts the, the reality is uh, there's there's i don't want to spend too much time i think it is so important right um uh, so I, i just want to make sure we 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 get in uh you know to to the effects that that this can drive um you know 90 when i started in the market uh 97 98 uh was uh was the last time we saw kind of this kind of dollar strength right um and uh that led to some very predictable things uh, we've seen this throughout history um you know dollar denominated debt becomes a problem abroad um you know what the what the fed is essentially doing they they want the dollar higher right uh because uh, they get to export inflation uh, in a time of inflation that's helping internal inflation uh be controlled but that that means we are as a country the US is exporting that inflation abroad um it also uh as i mentioned because a dollar denominated debt can cause really tail events uh on the sovereign level um uh so Uh, and that can then come back you know it always comes back uh to to kind of sink the whole world in the sense that there's always financialization around these things that ultimately then implodes uh, that's why we saw long-term capital management implode um in in 98 in 9798 um and uh, we saw a lot of other uh you know entities have similar problems throughout that period so um even though uh you know we are in some ways um you know managing volatility by markets rebalancing with these things right we are um creating uh kind of tail uh risks within that um uh with within, within that context so i think we're going to a, a type of market that is is much more um kind of like uh you know 97 98 where we're likely to things are not necessarily um going to to implode in in a straight line right uh i think we're going to we're building more and more pressure for some tail events um that are going to come from kind of uh, unknown uh locations uh but throughout the uh, emerging emerging markets and, and worlds uh, you know in that regard so i think again the dollar uh, i to be clear uh, you know, my view is is that this inflation secular we haven't talked about that much on the show and, and that could be a whole another podcast but but uh you know you know that from other conversations and and that that view means uh you know we're we're likely to see a stronger and stronger dollar so this is um you know we've been calling for that for a while and and you know definitely been playing out so we think there's a a much uh you know even even longer leg to uh, you know up to uh, this dollar strength um and and uh, it's already getting uh, a lot of countries and a lot of uh entities really um uh you know uh, uncomfortable um and, and again you're likely to see that through currency issues we you know we've seen again we've seen that with gilts already we're we're likely to see uh you know something uh, with jgbs we've seen a little bit there but that could get worse um and so there's so many uh, little um little pegs and little uh you know uh things that can can really uh blow out as a, as a function of that um and so that's that's the most you know important kind of 
cross uh, national uh, you know uh, thing to be aware of and thoughtful of as as we're um, you know looking at real flows and geopolitical risks. Um, so that would that would be the first thing I, I'd look at. Obviously, outside of the dollar kind of wrecking ball, um, I think there's um, you know a lot of other things obviously sitting out there. The commodity story here um, is. Uh, is, is a big one. Um, again, you and I uh, have recently interviewed Adam Rosenzweig uh, a couple times. Uh, I've really dug into that topic uh, on your macro series. Um, but, but uh, you know, I think, again, we're in this competition game and resource scarcity is is uh, is a real thing. Um, and that's kind of the leverage that uh, countries are going to use versus one another, not just commodities. It's true for labor. It's true for uh, capital. That's what the U.S. is doing with a strong dollar, right? It's a leverage point uh, and, and a resource that they're able to uh, use, uh, yield as a weapon uh, or however you want to think about it against others. Um, and uh, and I think commodities are the other kind of pain point. That's a leverage point, a resource that is really going to uh, continue to cause tails as we've, as we've seen out there, um, particularly with the SPR being down to where it is, um, you know, getting to the end of the midterms and having to, they, they the, 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 the government, uh, the U S government's, uh, announced Biden announced that he's going to buy back, you know, very publicly oil at $72 a barrel, which is very interesting. Um, so, uh, you have kind of a, 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 a the U S government put on commodities now, and you have, uh, inelastic, uh, supply, which could really make it go a lot higher. I don't know how they put a roof on it. So there's a put and, and there's massive upside. So, uh, yeah, commodities are definitely a, a problem out there, um, for obvious reasons. Um, so those are just the first two. And then obviously, you know, uh, China, right. I think that's the biggest tail risk, um, of all. I mean, uh, people just kind of whistled by the U S semiconductor policy, uh, you know, change and what that and what that means, uh, as if that's nothing. Uh, that that is basically telling you that that we are bifurcating. That is that is the final. I mean, it's been happening, but that is the nail um, in the coffin. And 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 uh, to be clear, um, you don't do that if you're the U.S. unless you're worried about something bigger happening. Uh, they're they're trying to proactively um, kind of lean on uh, you know. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a form of uh, de deterrent, I think, more than anything uh, about what might be happening. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but I was with an executive from Palantir um, just yesterday. Um, had a nice dinner, um, and the topic of China Taiwan came up. And uh, I'll just say his views are uh, based on what he's seeing is very much aligned with with what I've, what I've been saying for some time, which is it's going to happen much sooner than people expect. Um, and that's the other big tale of it happening. Yeah, I think there actually was some news out that I saw within the last week where one of the U.S. officials, uh, or maybe not, no, maybe it was actually... No, uh, it was a U.S. general, I'm forgetting his name actually. Um, yeah. But yeah, it recently came out and said, uh, you know, we can't... Uh, can't say that it's not going to happen before 2024 uh, basically insinuating that it, it's likely to happen before uh, 2024 and that uh, earlier expectations of it being you know uh, years away um, have have dramatically changed in in the US you know intelligence community uh, and every action we've seen not just from China and uh, you know and, and what they've said uh, insinuates that we don't have to get into all those details but uh, but every action now that we're seeing from the U.S. response also verifies that that's probably what the the uh, the U.S. Um, kind of intelligence is also thinking. So 
Um, I mean, how did, that was uh, people laughed me out of the room uh, six months ago when I said it's a 30 to 50 percent probability of happening in the next two years. Now it seems uh, like that's more the expected outcome uh, or, or we're moving that way. And, and I think everything I've seen since only confirms that. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So in, in again, in my world, in the trend following world, um, uh, a lot of the things that has uh, all one of the themes I should say that has happened in the last few years, it's almost like, you know, when pension funds, they get into trouble because they, in their search for yield, they do silly things like lever up or go into more illiquid stuff. Um, and, and maybe even they add leverage to that as well. And, and, you know, and then they're surprised when they realize that suddenly they're sitting at massive losses and so on and so forth. But in the trend following space, we see this very interesting, um, sort of, um, uh, evolution where many managers have moved into quote unquote alternative markets, right? Where um, maybe some people believe that they are more trending, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, and if they are, um, it may be, be, be because of um, uh, less liquidity in those markets. So they're harder to get access to for, for managers. And, um, but there's certainly been a big push uh, for that. And my own view is that I don't think they are more trending, um, but they may trend at different times. But if you're if if what you're suggesting uh, comes to pass, and we do see this sudden massive conflict break out in in the east, you know, again, I what I worry about is that we're going to see um, these markets suddenly dry up completely in terms of liquidity. Uh, that these alternative markets really are alternative, and you can't get you know neither in or out. Um, either because of regulation or exchanges closing down or just no bids, no 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 offers. So it is a con- I mean it is a concern um, for sure on many many levels, not just the actual human life level, which of course would be uh, disastrous as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, it's it's not just about war and life, uh, you know, and, and other struggle there. I mean, quite simply. 40 years of deflationary pressures from globalization is coming to an end. <laughs> that's not, that yeah. sounds bombastic. That's fact. I mean, that's what we're seeing, right? Uh, uh, and God, what is, what does that mean for input costs for labor and the, and the, the demo, you know, in the Western world? Um, I mean, you think the inflationary pressures we've seen so far are bad. Um, you know, what happens with true bifurcation? Um, uh, you know, we, we got to make you got to make up for forty years of uh, just-in-time logistics across, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese labor, and uh, you know, it's it's um, it's it doesn't that doesn't happen overnight, and, and that's going to take some time and investment. It's not the end of the world. We will get through this too, right? Um, but but it does mean a dramatic shift and change in, in the way the economy works and the way. Uh, global trade works, uh, and these things are, uh, you know, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together that quickly. Uh, it takes time. Well, I mean, I don't want to steal his thunder, um, but I will say that you and I have, in a couple of weeks um, or so, maybe it's a, 10 days or so, uh, we have a recording coming up with someone who's spent most of his life uh, traveling in China, Russia, Middle East, and and I've heard him on on other platforms talk about what he's expecting in terms of inflation and yields, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I think that uh, people will be surprised to hear how high 
um, some of this, uh, is, he's expecting them to go. And and maybe like yourself, people will initially kind of laugh when, 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 when you say that. But I also remember conversations with people only a year and a half ago where when I was saying, well, actually, I think inflation was going to be a much bigger problem than than um, than anyone you know can think about right now, and and people were kind of laughing at that, and then suddenly we have double digit inflation in Europe. And by the way, I can't remember who told me, but I think someone recently just put together like a basket of goods in Germany that you would normally buy in a supermarket. So not the official uh, inflation number, but a basket of goods that you would normally buy in Germany. And the price was this year 39% higher than last year. I mean, that is scary. Yeah, a lot of these things, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I have family in Turkey. Uh, I go out there uh, once a year and, and talk to them very much in touch with what's happening there. They've had 80% right. inflation. That's right. the head, That's what the headline says. It's, it's probably higher. Um, but people get used to it. That's the thing. It's like a, being in a car. If you're going 100, you know, kilometers an hour, <clears throat> it feels fine. If you accelerate to to 200 kilometers an hour, right, very quickly, uh, it's painful. But then again, you're at 200 kilometers and just everything's just coasting along on, on a train or whatever. So I think it's the move from one regime to another that's going to be painful and scary. Uh, I think we will adapt to that new environment, um, you know, as we get there. So let me ask you a question, Jim, because that's interesting. And of course, I knew your background, but I've kind of, um, now that you say it, it prompts me to ask, so what do these, what do investors then do when they're faced with that level of inflation? What do pension funds do when they sit with bonds in their portfolio? Inflation is 80%. I imagine their bonds is probably not worth a lot. No. I yeah. mean, what, what actually happens? Yeah, so... Uh, it's an interesting. And I don't know dynamic. if you know the answer. It's no, a little bit unfair to. I, I can speak okay. to it a little bit because I, again, I've um, recently spoke to my my cousin who's like a brother to me. He's my age. He works out there, and, and we we kind of dove into this topic a bit. So I got a little bit boots on the ground understanding of what it's like. Uh, inflation's not a monolith, right? Uh, not everybody experiences inflation the same way. I think that's important to note. It really um, it, it, it it's uneven, it, dramatically so. In in, in Turkey. Um, 60, 55 percent or so of, of the uh, of workers are um, have their pay tied to some minimum wage, right? It's either minimum wage or, or tied to it. And so what the the government has done is it's raised pay twice, uh, a total of 80 percent, right? Um, and so workers are getting paid 80 percent more. Um, uh, there are rent controls uh, nationally, so you can't raise rent more than 25 percent per annum. So uh, food is broadly uh, well supplied in the country. Uh, they are, they are self producer of, of most of the food that they eat, um, so that hasn't been a major pain point. Inflation on, for food has not been bad there. Um, really, the only major input that they don't have is energy, um, and this is why you see Erdogan, uh, you know, buying energy from Russia at a discount. Um, so, um, for your average worker, they're actually doing better. Uh, so 80% inflation sounds like you'd have riots in the street. There are no riots in the street because people, yeah, most of the working class are doing better. Um, it's still uh, psychologically uh, bad, right? People don't like inflation. It's scary. You know, people don't think about the, but they're not, they're, they're doing fine. Also, healthcare is, uh, uh, you know, nationalized there. They, he's, he's provided healthcare nationally. And so that, that hasn't been an issue either. Now, 
on your other side of the question, you have the landlord who is right battling to the rent controls, right? Uh, the corporation that uh, you know uh, is having to pay all these people uh, that much more, um, and and, uh, and so they're they're major. Uh, and this is where the dollar wrecking ball and these things come into play, right? Uh, sovereigns have to backstop some of these things and provide, and they can do that for a while. Um, it comes down to their own power, right? Uh, luckily, Erdogan sits in Turkey, sits in a very pivotal place uh, in, a, in a time where uh, countries uh, need him, are willing to to do things that they you know need to do to. And so, uh, you know, he, much like India and other countries, are are wielding that power. Uh, you know, much like the U.S. and other countries wield their power, right? To to um, to to make sure that they don't they can they can borrow more and and do you know. Uh, make do with the reserves and get lines of credit and do whatever they need to do to, to keep everything together. Um, but I, you know, the, the, again, they can dive much. This is a complicated topic, right? But that doesn't mean they, they can necessarily if, if they, if a country doesn't have that power and can't, uh, you know, have keep investment, global investment and has outflows, uh, things start to break. Um, and that is where the kind of the dollar wrecking ball starts wrecking things. And, and so the question is, where is that likely to happen? Where is that power, you know, uh, not strong enough to hold things together in a, in a world where you could get major outflows, um, uh, you know, and, and for corporations to. So didn't answer your question directly, but that's kind of my broad no, that's uh, fair. You know, that's uh, fair. view no, and what was, I've seen. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny you, into, you mentioned this thing about rent control. Actually, Denmark, uh, even, you know, a country that you would think are pretty well run in terms of the economy at least um they are introducing they've announced they're going to introduce rent control of four percent whilst inflation is more than twice of uh, of that so it's definitely uh, something that that's happening and the other thing i was kind of curious about is what i mean think about germany uh, from my travels to germany and meeting with you know institutional investors i seem to have walked away with thinking well they have like 70 80 percent of their uh, money is invested in fixed income it's in the complete reverse of the u.s and in a world like that what the hell sorry i shouldn't square but what happens when when um when uh, inflation suddenly takes off like that and 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 bond prices so far in germany obviously the yields are still modest uh, on, a, on a historic scale but what if ten-year boons goes to twenty percent yield because it because inflation is 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 twenty percent in real terms? Not so. Anyways, uh, these are just big questions, but we're not going to tackle them today. Unfortunately, there's so much to dive hour. into, right? What a, there's so know. much to dive into. It'll be next time. It's only going to be a few weeks. It'll be next time. So no worries on that. I think Jim, we're going to say this is it for now. Um, we hope that people have enjoyed it. If you did. Head over to iTunes, head over to Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to the podcast. Go there, hit follow, leave a rating and review. We so much um, appreciate that, and we certainly uh, appreciate the support. Next week, I'm joined by Alan, so this will be your chance to tackle some of your questions uh, with him on allocation, trend following, whatever uh, you want. Uh, you can email them, of course, to info at toptradersonplug.com. From Jim and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of the team. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. 
If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.